I'm Elizabeth Slattery, and welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, I'm joined by Sheldon Gilbert of the National Constitution Center, and we'll talk about planking for RBG, Clarence Thomas speaking, and I also recently sat down with the Oklahoma Solicitor General, Mithin Mansinghani. Sheldon, welcome back to SCOTUS 101 once again. Uh, thanks. I'm so excited to listen to your interview with Mithin. He's fantastic. <laughs> he is. So let's talk about a couple of SCOTUS headlines of the week. Uh, fans were planking at the court to celebrate RBG's birthday. Last week marked the justice's 86th birthday, and a group of fans showed up outside the court to plank in her honor. Uh, her longtime trainer was on hand for the event and revealed that the notorious RBG is back in the gym after recuperating from her surgery in December. So here's wishing Justice Ginsburg a belated happy birthday. Moving on to another SCOTUS headline, Justice Clarence Thomas Speaks. <laughs> the court heard oral argument in a number of cases this week. The most noteworthy is Florida versus Mississippi. The case was already gaining attention because it's the subject of a podcast, season two of In the Dark, uh, which is a pretty great podcast if listeners haven't heard of it. Uh, but then Justice Thomas asked a question at the oral argument. So that raised the case's profile even more. So by way of background, the case stems from the 1996 murder of four people at a furniture store in Winona, Mississippi. Curtis Flowers, who had recently been fired from the, the store, was charged with the murders. And over the past 23 years, he's been tried six times, which just blows my mind when I, you know, when I read about this case. Uh, so the Mississippi Supreme Court overturned his conviction and death sentence following several of those trials for prosecutorial misconduct. Throughout the six trials, the prosecutor, District Attorney Doug Evans, used peremptory strikes to remove the majority of prospective jurors who were black. Uh, looking at all six trials, Evans struck 41 of 42 prospective black jurors. So under the Supreme Court's 1986 ruling in Batson versus Kentucky, a prosecutor may not base a peremptory strike on race. So at the argument this week... A number of the justices seemed troubled by the history of this case. Even Justice Sam Alito, who is famously pro-prosecution, said the DA's conduct was really disturbing. The justices seemed to be searching for a way to handle this unique case without requiring courts to go way back into prosecutors' histories in every uh, future Batson case. And then Justice Thomas broke his years-long silence uh, to ask a question. He wanted to know how Curtis Flowers' trial attorney had used her peremptory strikes and what the race of those prospective jurors uh, were that she struck. And the lawyer explained that all of the strikes were used to remove white jurors, but at that point, there was only one black juror, a uh, potential juror, left in the, in the jury pool. So... Justice Thomas rarely speaks up at oral argument. In fact, it's been three years since his last question. Uh, so anytime he pipes up, SCOTUS watchers take note. Uh, so Sheldon, wh what's your what's your read on Thomas's participation and and uh, in general the oral argument? Yeah, you know, um, I, it was a really interesting oral argument, and and the justices were were really intrigued by kind of the situation on the ground that, that the jury pool is being drawn from a very small community. There are something like five thousand people in the town. And it seems like, you know, uh, everybody seems to know everybody. Um, <laughs> yeah. And uh, and I think Justice Thomas was trying to get at uh, the kind of the, the tough question that everybody's asking is, is there another way to explain the prosecutor's behavior other than uh, that it's motivated by race? And and, you know, asking, well, how did the, the defense attorney behave? What are the the 
what, what types of individuals was the defense attorney um, uh, striking? Uh, my, my sense, though, is that Justice Thomas, uh, ha- when he has piped up recently, it has been in criminal cases. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and so, you know, we'll see if it's another three years uh, or 10 <laughs> years before he pipes up again. Yeah. Not too long ago, I saw a T-shirt uh, with a picture of Thomas and it said, I like the strong, silent type. <laughs> I might need to get one of those. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, moving on to opinions, uh, the court issued a number of opinions this week. Um, first up is Frank versus Gauss. Uh, this was a per curiam opinion. So that means it was uh, not under any one justice's name. Uh, the court vacated the Ninth Circuit's decision approving a Cypre only class action settlement and remanded on standing issues. So the case stems from a suit against Google for violations of the Stored Communications Act, among other claims. The parties negotiated a settlement in which Google would pay $5 million to Cypre recipients, including um, the alma maters of the uh, of the opposing counsel uh, and, and other charities, uh, and no money would go to the vast majority of the class. Uh, the two class members challenged the settlement. This week, the court sent the case back to the lower court, stating that it is, quote, a court of review, not a first view, and the lower court must determine whether the plaintiffs have standing uh, to sue in light of the court's 2016 decision in Spokio versus Robbins. Justice Thomas dissented. Uh, He wrote that he would have reversed the class certification and class settlement orders because class members received no damages or other form of meaningful relief. Any thoughts on that one? Yeah, you know, the the decision probably wasn't that surprising after oral argument. Um, But the the piece that I think a lot of people paid attention to was Thomas's dissent, where, you know, he did say he would reach the merits. and, and, uh, And I think if this goes back to the Ninth Circuit, the Ninth Circuit is kind of in a bind, right? Either it can say, no, Ted Frank and the other uh, named class plaintiff don't have standing, in which case the Ninth Circuit has to kind of crack down on some of its loose standing jurisprudence in order to reach that result. Or or the Ninth Circuit says, yeah, you know, Ted Frank does have standing. Uh, he is nominally injured by this privacy violation. And then the case goes back up to the Supreme Court. And I think uh, Justice Thomas's dissent is probably what's going to carry the day on the underlying merits. I think that it it uh, is going to look to a lot of the justices pretty fishy that of an $8.5 million settlement, $0 of that went to anybody <laughs> who was actually hurt yeah. uh, if this is uh, a real injury. And I think that was troubling to a lot of the justices. Uh, so sticking with the with the Ninth Circuit, not a great week for the Ninth Circuit. It was also reversed in Nielsen versus Preap. This was a 5-4 decision by Justice Alito uh, involving I- interpretation of a federal law that allows the Department of Homeland Security to arrest and hold deportable aliens pending a removal decision. Uh, Sheldon, do you want to talk about that one a little bit? Sure. This, uh, in, in a nutshell, there's a statutory provision that the court says uh, holds requires the mandatory detention of certain immigrants in certain circumstances. But the wrinkle here is that the fact pattern we have before us is that the immigrant in question was not actually detained until seven years after he should have been mandatorily detained, right? <laughs> um, and uh, Justice Alito says in his opinion, well, you know what? Yes, the, the federal government was seven years late detaining this individual, but, quote, better late than never, right? And if we come up with a rule that if the, the government doesn't uh, mandatorily detain somebody when they were supposed to, that can't be a windfall to the person that should have been detained, that they 
you know, because the government didn't do it right away, they, they kind of get off the hook. That's that was Alito's argument. Um, what my favorite part of the, the, the opinion is actually in the dissent by Justice Breyer. And Justice Breyer is trying to explain why Justice Alito's statutory interpretation method doesn't really make any sense. And he comes up with this cookbook hypothetical, right? He says, <laughs> imagine there's a cookbook with where with instructions that say, step one is take the Angus steak from the grill. Step four is let the steak rest for 10 minutes. And, uh, and, and, you know, somehow says like this, this example shows that Justice Alito's statutory interpretation doesn't really make sense. And I think I and everybody else read that. And we just thought like, what are steps two and three, right? <laughs> like Justice Breyer, you need to give us steps two and three. We really want to know what's happening to that stake between step one and step four. Well, and, and we don't get do, that do steps two and three involve Justice Gorsuch's famous steak rub? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Definitely steak is on the mind of the Supreme Court. And, I just want to know what kind of barbecue parties they're having on the weekend. <laughs> Sounds like a good time. Of <laughs> uh, in another decision this week in Washington State Department of Licensing versus Cougar Den, this was written by Justice uh, Justice Breyer. It was a, a fractured decision where we had uh, Justice Breyer joined by Sotomayor and Kagan in full and Gorsuch and Ginsburg concurring in the judgment only. So this deals with an 1855 treaty between the United States and the Yakima Nation in Washington state that reserves the tribe's right to travel upon all public highways. So the state of Washington attempted to tax the importation of fuel by tribe members for sale on the reservation. Uh, The state assessed $3.6 million in fines on a Yakima-owned company um, that imports fuel, but the company argued that the treaty preempts the state's efforts. So siding with the tribe, uh, Justice Breyer held that the treaty should be understood how how the tri- tribe understood it in 1855. Justice Gorsuch wrote a concurrence joined by Justice Ginsburg, kind of interesting, uh, interesting bedfellows there, writing that the tribe's right to travel includes the right to travel with goods. Chief Justice Roberts wrote a dissent joined by Thomas Alito and Kavanaugh, arguing that the state is trying to tax the possession of fuel and not travel on the highway, so it hasn't infringed on the tribe's treaty rights. And then Kavanaugh wrote a separate dissent, which was joined by Thomas, uh, writing that even if the state was regulating travel here, it was a non-discriminatory regulation, uh, and it didn't affect the the, uh, tribe member's right to travel on public highways on equal terms with any other U.S. citizen. So I think I, I'm wondering if this will have any, you know, implications or if we can read any tea leaves here for how this may affect the the Oklahoma case involving, you know, whether half of the state of Oklahoma is is actually a an Indian uh, reservation that we never knew was there. Um, but that was definitely one they struggled with at the oral argument. You know, the uh, Justice Gorsuch's opinion is really interesting, right? He says. Look, all we've got to go on is the text of the treaty, right? And this is, you know, his mantra, uh, you know, uh, 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 kind of across all of his jurisprudence. And he says, look, the text of the treaty looks like this is what they bargained for, the tribes bargained for. And if the U.S. doesn't like uh, the bargain that it struck, then it should have, you know, it should try again, right? It should try and cut <laughs> a different deal. But we're not going to let the government out of the bargain that that, uh, that it struck. And in particular, uh, he says, you know, look. The, the the treaty was written in a language that the tribes couldn't even understand, right? And, and it's kind of somewhat uh, ridiculous that the government is coming to us now and saying, well, you know, we don't really like the deal that, that we struck. Um, and he had kind of very little tolerance for uh, the behavior of the government uh, in the case. That's my read of, of his opinion. 
Yeah, there were two other uh, decisions this week. We we won't get into them, but one involves the Federal Debt Collection Practices Act, and the other involves uh, it's a Navy asbestos case and a product manufacturer's duty to warn. So moving on to the orders, um, first up, the the court called for the views of the Solicitor General in a a case, uh, a pending cert petition in Patterson versus Walgreens. And this case looks at how much employers must do to accommodate an employee's religious practices. And it's asking the court specifically to overrule TWA versus Hardison, which Justice Alito suggested the court might want to revisit uh, when he wrote a statement respecting denial of cert in the case involving Coach Joe Kennedy, uh, the football coach uh, from California who was fired uh, because he would take a knee and silently pray on the field after games. So it'll be interesting to see what the SG has to say about this case and whether the court ultimately takes up that issue. Moving on, the court also uh, announced several grants, which will go on on the docket next term starting in October. First up is Kansas versus Garcia. This is looking at whether a uh, a state can prosecute identity theft using the federal I-9 identity verification form, whether that is preempted by uh, the Federal Immigration and uh, Reform Control Act. And then there's... um, there's a case involving one of the perpetrators of the D.C. sniper attacks. Uh, the The individual was a minor at the time in 2002 when he and um, and another individual uh, terrorized the D.C. area uh, and, and killed 10 people. So he was a minor at the time, as I said, and he challenged his sentence in light of the court's ruling in Miller versus Alabama that mandatory life without parole sentences for juvenile murderers violates the Eighth Amendment. After the Miller decision, the court held in 2016 that the Miller case applies retroactively on collateral review. Uh, So the state of Virginia, or the Commonwealth of Virginia, argues that the lower court actually expanded the Miller rule in its retroactive application uh, in in the D.C. Snipers case. So that one will definitely um, be one to watch. Uh, it might sound like a dry, you know, criminal procedure issue, but I think given the uh, the respondent in the case, uh, the DC sniper, it's definitely going to get a lot of attention. Any thoughts on those? You know, uh, my first thought is that uh, when the whole DC sniper thing was happening, I was living in Utah at the time, uh, but was uh, getting ready to move to Washington D.C. with my uh, new wife and my mother-in-law thought I was absolutely terrible um, because uh, we were, you know, moving to Washington, D.C. and uh, and what a what a, a dangerous uh, place it would be. So that's actually the, the thing that first came to my mind when I uh, saw the, <laughs> the case that 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 memory from many years ago. Yeah, definitely. Um, so two two other grants. Um, one involves whether the 14th Amendment incorporates the Sixth Amendment guarantee of a unanimous verdict against the states. Uh, Perhaps the court is on an incorporation roll after it held earlier this term that the Eighth Amendment excessive fines clause applies to the states. Uh, So we'll we'll see what they're going to do there next term. And then finally, in Collar versus Kansas, the issue is whether the Eighth and Fourteenth Amendments allow a state to abolish the insanity defense. So a pretty criminal law heavy docket coming up, it seems like. Yeah, that'll be uh, a rip-roaring term. Lots of exciting cases. (laughs) Well, moving on, I recently spoke with Mithin Mansinghani. Mithin Mansinghani is the Solicitor General of Oklahoma. Welcome to SCOTUS 101, Mithin. Glad to be here. So you've worked in in the Oklahoma Attorney General's office for four years, the last two as Solicitor General. So first off, how did you end up in Oklahoma? 
was uh, practicing in private practice here in D.C. with Gibson Dunn, and um, I decided I wanted to make the move to public service. And one thing I'd always heard was uh, one great option of doing that is working for a state solicitor general's office. Um, one of my colleagues at Gibson Dunn had already left Misha Saitlin to become the deputy solicitor general of West Virginia, and eventually became the solicitor general of Wisconsin. Um, and I inquired to various different states, and Oklahoma uh, had an open spot for a deputy solicitor general, and it fit with what I was looking for. So I took the uh, risk and stepped into a state I've never stepped into before, <laughs> uh, and um, uh, everything went from there. So the Oklahoma SG's office is a relatively new one. Your predecessor, Patrick Wyrick, was the first SG. So tell me about joining the office in its relatively early days. Yeah, so I joined the office about four years into uh, now Justice Wyrick being a Solicitor General. And um, it was it was a, a great time. Uh, the office was doing a lot of things as far as bringing actions uh, against the federal government for regulatory overreach, uh, and we had a lot of flexibility in doing that. At the time, Attorney General Pruitt was was quite enthusiastic and receptive to uh, <laughs> figuring out ideas how to do that. Uh, and then we also had to navigate what type of space we were going to carve out for ourselves in the office. Obviously, you know, the, the office before uh, the um, Solicitor General position existed already had people doing all the work. Um, and so, you know, we had to figure out exactly what sort of appeals and what sort of issues we were going to take over. So speaking of Patrick Wyrick, he's now an associate justice on the Oklahoma Supreme Court, and he's also on President Trump's not-so-short list for Supreme Court vacancies. Uh, so have you argued any cases before him? I have. Um, working with Justice Wyrick as Solicitor General was possibly the best working relationship I've had in my life. We We just we worked very well together in litigating cases. Uh, litigating in front of him uh, has been um, just, in a certain sense, a continuation with that. A lot of good <laughs> appellate advocates say that um, uh, a good argument is having a conversation with mm -hmm. the judges you're arguing in front of. And I've had dozens, if not hundreds, of conversations about the law with Justice Wyrick while he was Solicitor General. So um, my first argument in front of him was his first argument on the bench as a state Supreme oh, wow. Court Justice. And it was a uh, it was a, 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 a issue regarding a challenge to a, a fee or tax on cigarettes um, that was being challenged. Uh, I had to defend the law as being a fee, and it was being challenged as an unlawfully passed tax uh, under the state constitution. Um, and he was certainly my, my uh, most active questioner, but he, <laughs> he, he, he's generally that on the bench anyway. Mm -hmm. um, but we, we, div we started to have a conversation like we always did. Uh, he eventually ruled against me in a nine to zero decision, his first ever <laughs> written majority opinion. Um, so clearly he, he was not showing any bias. Um, uh, but the second case I had from him argued the same day. Uh, he also wrote the majority opinion, a 5-4 decision in my favor. Um, so um, uh, it's, 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 it's a pleasure, and, and, I, and <laughs> I enjoy having him on the bench because I know I'll have um, a justice who will understand and follow the law. So do you feel like he gave you a harder time than maybe some other advocates before him? Um, no, I think he felt, <laughs> he probably felt a little less bad about asking tough questions because he knew I could handle them. Um, but I don't think he, he gave me an easier or a harder time. <laughs> Certainly not an easier one. So you've also argued before the Tenth Circuit. So tell me what that experience is like. 
the Tenth Circuit's um, a fun circuit to argue in front of. I would say they are jurisprudentially and geographically in between the fifth and the ninth. Um, and uh, at the same time, they're very much a, a Western circuit. So you go to Denver and they have mm -hmm. a pretty nice and spacious, roomy courthouse, but everything has a very uh, Western. And by that, I don't mean, um, you know, West Coast. I mean, Western cowboy feel to it. As a matter of fact, <laughs> I, I spoke at the 10th Circuit Bench and Bar Conference two years ago and their thank you gift for speaking uh, were bookends in the shape of uh, boot spurs, uh, <laughs> oh, which great. are really, really nice and I very much enjoy having. <laughs> that's great. Um, so do you have any pre-argument rituals? Do you have a pump-up song? Do you eat four bananas, anything like that? So I, I can't say I do something regularly every single time I argue, um, but there are a couple of things that I do more consistently. So. One is uh, I always polish my own shoes the night before the argument. It's sort of a very physical, uh, you know, repetitive, but nonetheless productive thing to do before an argument to kind of get yourself in the mindset. Um, and you have polished shoes in the morning, so that's nice. <laughs> uh, the second thing, which I probably wouldn't have said if it wasn't for the fact that um, Aaron Murphy, who is a much better advocate than me, and so I'm in good company by saying this, is I tend to listen to Lose Yourself by Eminem. <laughs> I didn't know anybody else did that until Aaron admitted she did that in the podcast a few a few months ago. It's it's a very um, inspirational song. It can really get, get the blood flowing and get you excited for your argument. So let's turn to, uh, to one of the cases that your state has currently before the Supreme Court. Unlike your neighbors to the south, um, Oklahoma doesn't find itself at the Supreme Court all that often these days. Uh, but your state has a, a case before the justices this term in which a criminal defendant argues that basically half of the state is actually an unrecognized Indian reservation. So tell me a little bit about that case. Yeah, and this case is almost existentially important to the state. Um, and, you know, Oklahoma is in front of the Supreme Court probably once every two or three years, so not as often as Texas, uh, certainly. <laughs> um, we just get into less trouble. Uh, this case is um, a murder case, actually. It arose out of a uh, love triangle and a gruesome murder that was committed in 1999. Uh, Mr. Murphy um, committed the murder in 1999, was convicted in 2000, and then in 2004 started raising the argument for the first time that the state did not have jurisdiction to try him because he was an enrolled Creek Indian. His victim was an enrolled Creek Indian. And, and this is a sort of unique part, he committed the crime on an Indian reservation. Um, and that's the main, that last part is the main dispute in this case. So Oklahoma has not recognized any reservations in the state, and essentially nobody has claimed any reservations in the state since statehood in 1907. Uh, so this claim was, was quite surprising, and no court accepted it until the Tenth Circuit did in 2017. Um, uh, now, uh, the jurisdictional rules that apply on reservations and the entire legal and social regime on reservations is very different from non-reservation land. And his claim, the implication of his claim is that the entire former Indian territory, which is the entire eastern half of the state, uh, is in fact a, a, a set of Indian reservations uh, to what are known as the five tribes, which were uh, brought to Oklahoma and some very sad history, including the Trail of Tears. Um, and, 
just to give an idea of the impact uh, of this ruling of the Tenth Circuit's decision stands, uh, although the Supreme Court has obviously you know, accepted Sertio Rari on it, uh, if you total up all the reservation population in the United States, it's about 900,000 people that live on reservations. This set of reservations, if you include all of eastern Oklahoma alone, is 1.8 million people. So that would triple the reservation population in the United States uh, and make Oklahoma have two-thirds of that, uh, uh, of that population. Um, and and this in, impacts uh, not only this person's particular conviction, but the convictions of anybody who committed their crime in this area, either by uh, or against uh, a Native American, um, as well as a numerous amount of, of civil implications ranging from taxes to alcohol sales to uh, um, uh, child custody proceedings. So the court heard oral argument at the end of last year, uh, which Lisa Blatt, the queen of SCOTUS advocacy, handled for, for your state. Uh, but after that, the, the justices asked for additional briefing. So it seems like even after the argument, the, the justices have more questions that they want answered. And we will see, hopefully by the end of June, uh, what, what the ruling will be. So moving on, uh, before entering government service, as you mentioned earlier, you spent a few years working at Gibson Dunn here in Washington. And that's a law firm with a lot of big names, Ted Olson, Miguel Estrada, Caitlin Halligan, Eugene Scalia, just to name a few. So tell me about your time at Gibson. Gibson was a great place to work. Uh, it was intimidating working with all of those people, but nothing <laughs> makes you learn quicker than having your memos and brief torn apart by uh, the best appellate litigators in the field. Um, especially at the time, my mentor, Tom Hungar, who I believe is now back at Gibson Dunn after serving as general counsel to the House of Representatives. Um, unlike many in big law, I did not find the hours uh, harrowing. It certainly uh, kept me busy, um, but I felt like I was able to have a good balance and I learned uh, so much in the years that I was there. That's wonderful. So earlier in your career, you clerked for Judge Jerry Smith on the Fifth Circuit who's based in Houston, Houston, Texas. So tell me about some of the highlights of your clerkship. Judge Smith is one of the best uh, appellate judges, federal appeals court judges in the country to clerk for. And there's there's can be little question about that. Um, I think sometimes the clerk's office, uh, the court clerk's office, when they're onboarding new law clerks, tell the Judge Smith clerks, welcome to the best appellate clerkship in the country. He's <laughs> a great judge, um, very smart, very principled, but he's also um, dedicated to ensuring that his clerks have the best possible uh, experience that year, which means, you know, he does not care what hours that we work so long as we get the work done in a high quality. Uh, he, uh, and he sort of only gives us the, the sort of meaningful, substantive work um, to do. Um, and, of course, the Fifth Circuit sits in New Orleans, and so, you know, having regular monthly trips to New Orleans uh, where the judge uh, uh, always manages to get a balcony room for us to use uh, when we want to <laughs> on Bourbon Street um, is, uh, is not a bad thing. So does Judge Smith have any traditions with his clerks, aside from the, the balcony rooms <laughs> on Bourbon Street? Um, there are uh, lots of traditions. Some of them involve New Orleans, like uh, having breakfast with the judge every morning before court. Um, when you are walking at, on Bourbon Street at 730 in the morning, it's very, very different. Um, <laughs> Probably uh, kind of sad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, sad is one word to use. Um uh, but within the chambers, uh, there are lots of traditions, and we have a lot of fun. So he has a casual dress code um, in chambers, so 
in Houston, that often means shorts and flip-flops because it's very hot and humid, uh, much to the chagrin of other judges and law clerks in the courthouse. Um, there was one judge who uh, once told him that uh, the, at least the prisoners dress better than we do because at least they're wearing <laughs> pants. Um, but aside from that, we were just a very we were just a very fun, loving chambers. His his uh, judicial assistant got us Nerf guns to use that like we just shot at each other at random times of the day, and sometimes they would fly <laughs> into his office in chambers, and he would just pick it up and go place it on our desk and and get back to work. Um, uh, he let us select our own cases which uh, we got into various rituals into how we would do that, um, uh, involving a plinko board and a roulette wheel. <laughs> um, and then the clerks all went out to trivia um, every week, and the clerkship class prior to me had won so much at trivia that they won a kegerator from a bar, uh, which now sits in chambers. <laughs> That's um, great. Uh, and then... Um, at the end of the clerkship, so he has also lunch with his clerks every day, which is really, really great. Mm -hmm. um, at the end of the clerkship, there are photo frames that the clerkship class is expected to fill out where you put a picture and a short message uh, for the judge. And this goes back to when he started as a judge in 1988. So you can see in his office wall uh, all of these clerks, including now fellow appeals court judges like mm -hmm. um, Judge Jim Ho and Judge Nabaldian and Judge Allison Ide. Uh, law professors, appellate litigators like a Gibson Dunn, Tom Dupree, screenplay writers, all of his former clerks. <laughs> you can see what their messages uh, were writing when they were 24 or 25, and uh, it's really great. That's really great. Well, one final question, uh, something we ask all guests at SCOTUS 101. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about? You know, I had been in the room with him several times, including uh, one of uh, Oklahoma's cases in front of the Supreme Court, Glossop v. Gross, um, but I never got to really interact with Justice Scalia um, on an interpersonal level. Um, and um, that's something I sort of will regret having not done. Um, I think his, I was in, I was traveling in Myanmar when I heard about his death, and um, his, Death was one that I probably mourned more than any other public servant mm -hmm. um, uh, or public figure um, when I learned about it. And it sort of affected, you know, that trip, which is why I was very conscious about how much it affected me. And I think it's because in a lot of senses, um, uh, lawyers who went to law school in our generation learned at his feet um, mm -hmm. uh, in reading his uh, opinions and reading his dissents. Um, and so, you know, I probably just talked to talk to him about it, about, talk to him about, you know, how he became the man he was growing up as a Italian boy in Queens, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think so. And um, and becoming the sort of most influential justice in our generation, um, and how one reconciles with that internally as just a a, a human being, uh, knowing that. You're sort of most a lot of people see you as more than just um, a person, but mm -hmm. something more than that. A titan and, of the law. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that would be a great conversation to have. Well, Mithin, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. It was a pleasure. We'll wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia, Clarence Thomas Speaks edition. I'm going to try to stump my guest, Sheldon. Are you ready? Uh, we'll see. <laughs> I, I may end up speaking less than Justice Thomas in re reaction to your question. Well, at least one of these is is a multiple choice question. Okay. Oh, good. 
First question. Before this week, the last time Justice Justice Thomas asked a question was after this major event at the court. I remember when it was. It was in February 2016. It was around the time that um, Justice Scalia passed away, as I recall. Yes, that that's correct. I wasn't sure the best way to phrase it. I, I don't know if you'd call that an event, but it was shortly after Justice Scalia's death. And I think a lot of court watchers thought that Justice Thomas was kind of stepping up and he asked questions in a in a case involving um, whether a misdemeanor domestic violence offense uh, qualified as the type of offense that could bar a, convict, a convicted offender from possessing a gun. Uh, a lot of people thought he was kind of stepping up to fill fill the role that Scalia would have um, would have played in that argument. And he dissented. He dissented in that case, if I recall, and it was a pretty lopsided uh, decision, but um, kind of true to his uh, his his originalism and in kind of the same way that Justice Scalia would sometimes uh, surprise expectations about which side he would land on in criminal cases. Yeah. Um, he uh, he said, wait a second. You know, I think his question was about um, the suspension of constitutional rights for violations of for misdemeanor crimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, as I recall, in his dissent, he was pretty troubled uh, by that proposition. So then before 2016, in 2013, Thomas broke his almost seven years of silence at oral argument to make a joke about this law school. <laughs> um, uh, I'm just going to go with Yale. <laughs> yes, that's correct. It was, I believe it was an odds were high. Yeah, an ineffective assistance of counsel case. And he, he made a joke about how, uh, you know, was the lawyer, uh, did he graduate from Yale? Because that would make him, <laughs> that would make him incompetent. <laughs> so <laughs> Justice Thomas has famously has no love for his alma mater. Third question, and this is your multiple choice one. Thomas has given different reasons for why he stays silent during oral argument. Which of the following is not one of those reasons? First, he's an introvert. Well, it's definitely not that. Like anybody who knows him knows that he's uh, gregarious, boisterous, hilarious, <laughs> fun, warm personality. So let's cross that one off. Uh, next, he's from the South. And when somebody's talking, you ought to listen. That sounds like something Justice Thomas would say. He's a very, uh, very polite guy. <laughs> uh, third, he views oral argument as a chance for the advocates to make their case, and he doesn't really want to hear what his colleagues have to say at this point. You know, I know he said that, but the point is to listen, to hear what the advocates say. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that's uh, I, I, I can't imagine he said that he's an, he's an introvert. Uh, I've never thought of him as an introvert, and that's kind of why it's so ironic that uh, – uh, his silence during the oral argument has him painted that way. But, so I, I'm going to say it can't, it's not going to be one. And I know it's not three because he's uh, uh, he said that the point of argument seems to be to listen to the counsel and, and what they have to say. Well, I have one more. Um, <laughs> oh, OK, good, because I'm starting to get worried here that I, I'm running out of options. Go ahead. The final one is he's hard of hearing. Yeah, I'm going to go with four. So I don't I don't know if if he is hard of hearing, but it's actually that one. <laughs> he, he has he has in an interview said that he's introverted, um, whether or not really? pe- people believe that. You know, I, I think whether you're an introvert or an extrovert has to deal more with how you charge your battery. Um, yeah, you know, yeah and, fair enough. And uh, well, I- yeah, so I, I, I can't I can't say whether or not he's hard of hearing, but that's the one that I made up. <laughs> well, can, <laughs> can I? Uh... 
um, recommend, there's this great article about Justice Thomas's questioning, um, oral argument questions by Aaron Nielsen and Ronell Anderson from a couple years ago. And they cataloged every single oral argument question he's ever asked at the federal appellate court or at the Supreme Court. And they analyze the questions. Wow. And their takeaway from this is uh, he doesn't ask very many questions, but he should because he's one of the best questioners on the court. Yes, <laughs> really powerful questions that really put the advocates uh, on on their, their toes. Uh, it's a great article and well worth the read. Well, I'll have to dig that up and I'll, I'll tweet it out to our, our listeners. Okay, final question. While Justice Thomas may be relatively quiet at oral argument, he has no trouble making his views known through his writings. If you combined his majority concurring and dissenting opinions from recent terms, how does he compare with his colleagues' output? I remember Adam White wrote something on this in the Weekly Standard some years ago and uh, and said that he was the most prolific in terms of opinion writing of any of the justices on the court. Again, this is the whole point that, like, he's he's not quiet. He's not timid. Uh, he's very productive. Uh, so I'm going to say uh, that uh, it puts him number one in terms of most productive opinion writer. Uh, that is correct. He authors roughly twice as many opinions as as his colleagues. And last term, for example, uh, if you just look at concurring opinions, he wrote 16. And the next highest was Justice Sotomayor, and she wrote seven concurring opinions. Well, I think you did a great job with uh, with trivia this time around, Sheldon. And you're not going to spring uh, <laughs> spring trivia on me. <laughs> uh, I, next next time, I'm going to give you another round of uh, of surprise trivia. Oh, but I got to keep you on your toes. Wonderful. Uh, well, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please leave us a five star rating if you enjoy listening. Please follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS101, and you can email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. You've been listening to SCOTUS101, executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery, sound designed by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit heritage.org. What the heck is trickle-down economics? Does the military really need a space force? What is the meaning of American exceptionalism? I'm Michelle Cordero. I'm Tim Desher. And every week on the Heritage Explains podcast, we break down a hot button policy issue in the news at a 101 level. Through an entertaining mix of personal stories, media clips, music, and interviews, we help you actually understand the issues. So do this. Subscribe to Heritage Explains on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts today.